Hello and welcome, y'all. You're listening to Southern Reverend, a podcast from a pastor in Georgia about the Christian faith, work in ministry, and life in the South. I'm your host, Joel Mooneyhan. I'm the pastor of community and spiritual formation at Atlanta Christian Church in Atlanta, Georgia. Whoever you are and wherever this finds you, I hope that you enjoy listening and that you walk away with something meaningful to take with you. It is the third week of Easter, and just for a few moments, I want to talk with you about the subversive tendency of God to love people everyone turned away and to give them good news, and to use people who we'd never expect to carry out His mission. You're going to know a few of these characters, and maybe you'll relate to their stories. And so without further ado, here we go. has a frustrating habit of picking the wrong people for the job. Abraham, by all accounts, was no one special. Moses was a fugitive murderer. David killed a man to take his wife. Esther was a concubine. Mary was a peasant, and Joseph was a carpenter. John was an impolite vagabond and, by all appearances, a lunatic. Peter was violent, carried a sword, and denied even knowing Jesus. Judas betrayed him, Thomas doubted him, and Saul hunted his followers. Surely God could have done better than this. Wouldn't it have made more sense for God to choose a nobleman to start his nation, or a righteous man to hand down his law, or a faithful man to be a king, or a diplomat to preserve his people, a queen to be his mother and a scholar to be his father, a poet to be his herald? a peaceful man to lead his church, an honest man to be his treasurer, a trusting man to be his disciple, and a devoted man to spread his good news. God is terrible at recruiting qualified people. Far from the mind of a CEO skimming the best CVs in a pile, or an HR manager conducting stringent interviews, or a board of experts vetting the best candidates, God picks people who look terrible on paper and leave awful first impressions. He chooses failures to carry out his mission. He chooses the oppressed to build his movement. He chooses outsiders to deliver his message. And at the most crucial moment in God's plan for redemption, he goes way off the map. It's the governor of a foreign power, a career soldier, and a group of grieving women who make the most important proclamations about who Jesus is and what he came to do. If you grew up within 10 feet of a church, then you've heard the name Pontius Pilate before. 
Now, a lot of people aren't familiar with the man outside of what scripture tells us. And fortunately, there's a lot of information we can get from outside sources. Pontius Pilate was the governor of the region of Judea under Roman rule. History tells us that he was unpopular among the Jewish people for his disregard of their customs, and he was once even whipped by his superiors in Rome for his handling of affairs in Judea. One year while in Jerusalem during Passover, he has brought a peasant named Jesus of Nazareth, accused of sedition and false claims to kingship. Such charges represented a threat to the Roman emperor, and threats like this could not be disregarded. The Gospel writer John tells us what happens when Pilate and Jesus are brought face to face. I often think of this exchange as similar to the famous scene in the movie Heat, where the characters played by Robert De Niro and Al Pacino sit down face to face. If you're a film buff, then you know that this is momentous in movie history because it's the first time that these two actors ever played a scene together. And it's crucial in the narrative of the movie because it's the moment when men from two sides of the law sit down over a cup of coffee and lay their cards on the table. And from this moment in the movie on, the trajectory of the narrative changes. It's a great film. You should check it out. But I digress. So, Pilate, facing Jesus, represents the kingdom of the world, facing off against the kingdom of God. And Jesus, a Jewish man entering the home of a Gentile, was breaching the barrier of ceremonial cleanliness that separated the two cultures. Jesus, walking in, breaks the separation between people. Now, it's important to understand that in John's gospel, Jesus' glory, his very claim to king, is directly tied to his suffering and his death. The next few hours in this day are not insignificant. After a perplexing conversation, and with no way out of it save to execute this man, Pilate sentences Jesus to crucifixion and hangs a sign on his cross with the charge, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now, the Jewish authorities didn't view Jesus as their king. They only said that he claimed to be, and so they asked Pilate to change the sign to reflect that. And Pilate's response is strange. He says, I have written what I have written. Jesus dies, and all of a sudden, it's a Roman governor who has declared that Jesus is the king. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus takes similar care to dodge the title Son of God, especially when it's said in relationship to his miraculous deeds and his empowering teachings. Because in Matthew, the title Son of God is also tied to Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection. God can perform miracles from heaven, and he'd sent many teachers before, but the mission of the Son of God is to die for the love of humanity.
In the 16th chapter of Matthew, Peter and Jesus have a conversation in which Peter himself declares that Jesus is the Son of God. But when Jesus describes his mission to suffer and die and to resurrect, Peter challenges him. The Son of God does not suffer. A Messiah does not die. Don't talk like that, Peter tells Jesus. And Jesus' response is fairly well known. Get behind me, enemy. Later on, as Jesus hangs on his cross to die, Matthew describes the temple curtain that kept the unclean from the divine being torn in two from top to bottom. Jesus, dying on the cross, breaks the separation between God and humanity. At that moment, a soldier present at the execution looks up and exclaims, Surely this man was the Son of God. And all of a sudden, it's a Gentile executioner who's proclaimed Jesus' true identity. It's fairly common knowledge that in the time of Jesus, women were held in particularly low regard. They weren't educated, they were viewed as superstitious, and their testimony was not even allowed in court. Jesus' career is different in this respect, because far from disregarding women, Jesus defends them against aggressors and even welcomes them into the circle of his teaching. So when scripture tells us that Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, sat at the feet of Jesus, the meaning of this expression is significant. This isn't a picture of a woman looking up at Jesus with dewy eyes and puppy love affection. This is an expression used for people who were learning as a student from a master. And Jesus faced opposition because of this. And yet, at Jesus' execution, it's the women who are present to witness his suffering. Most of the men were nowhere to be found because they were hiding for their lives. Three days later, a group of women, including Jesus' mother Mary, Mary Magdalene, and Joanna, go to visit the tomb. But he wasn't there. An angel tells them that he is risen, and that they should go and instruct the men to meet him in Galilee. And all of a sudden, it's a group of hysterical women who have the most important testimony to give and the most important instruction associated with it. Jesus is risen. Now go and spread the word.
The story of Easter, and indeed all of Scripture, is a story of expectation subverted. You wouldn't expect that it's a Roman governor who's the first person to correctly declare that Jesus is king. You wouldn't expect a soldier present at his execution to be the first person to correctly understand that he was the Son of God. And you wouldn't expect a group of grieving women to be the first witnesses to his resurrection and the first people to give testimony to it. God doesn't use the right people, and that's the point. God continually chooses men and women from nowhere to do great things in his name. Christ went to people who no one cared about to take his good news. None of them worthy of their status or equipped for their tasks, but all willing to trust that the God who called them would also walk with them through whatever struggles they faced. And that's the point of Jesus. God could have come to earth as a king to manifest his glory, and instead he came as a peasant. He could have come as a philosopher to spread his message, and instead he comes as a carpenter. He could have chosen to be a warrior to conquer the world, and instead he comes as a servant to conquer our hearts. He does these things in total contrast of our expectations of him and with utter disregard for the boundaries that we set up to separate ourselves from one another. Christ comes from an unlikely place, goes to unlikely people, and gives an unlikely message that we all have value even in our brokenness and that all of our brokenness can be redeemed. And maybe you wouldn't expect yourself to be worthy of Christ's love or Christ's call. I'll go ahead and clear this up for you. You're not. And I'm not. And none of us are. And that is why the message of Christ is so different. Christ loves us in spite of ourselves, and he calls us in spite of what others think. Christ didn't wait for us to get right before he proved his devotion. He just came to earth and poured himself out for people who had long been abandoned by everybody else. He didn't wait for us to be worthy before he made a sacrifice. He went ahead and climbed that hill to die on a cross where we were still stumbling in the dark. And he doesn't wait until we're ready before he sends us out to spread the good news that he seeks and he saves the lost. He just asks us to do it faithfully. So whether you struggle with how God can love you, or whether you struggle with how God can use you, if you're afraid that your story is over or that you fail too hard or that you have nothing to offer, you need only look to Christ, who turned away no one, to join his mission to save everyone. And that, my friends, is the good news. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Southern Reverend. I've been your host, Joel Mooneyhan. If you'd like to hear or read more from me, you'll find me at www.southernreverend.com. You can follow me on Instagram at the handle Southern Reverend. 
and also on facebook.com slash Southern Reverend. If you enjoyed this podcast, I'd love it if you shared it with a friend or a family member or a coworker on a Zoom call or whoever else you think might enjoy it. Thank you all again for listening and come back next week for episode four of Eastertide, where we will dive into the conversion and ministry of Paul. And a good friend of mine is going to be doing some music for it. I'm excited and I think you'll enjoy it as well. So until then, y'all take care and be good to